how many of you have ever worshipped in a Baptist church? Raise your hand. Look, keep them up there, look. Um, how many have been a member of a Baptist church? Good. Now, how many of you are born again? <laughs> Welcome to the Presbyterian church. I say that with great jest. I married a Baptist pastor's daughter. I was on staff of a Baptist church. I have tons of my friends and heroes who are my Baptist fellas. I could be the happiest non-denominational pastor in the world. When we get to heaven, we will not be called Presbyterians. But even if I were a non-denominational pastor, I would still practice baptism after the manner that we do here. I would still wait for believers to call upon Jesus and baptize them. And then when they had a household or a family, I would wet them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as well. So I don't believe this because it's part of my past. I don't believe it because of my history. I don't believe it because of my heroes. I don't believe it because of my preferences. I've come to this conclusion because I have a Father in heaven who sent His Son, who sent His Spirit, and the Father, Son, and Spirit have sent forth the Scripture. And I think I can show you from Holy Scripture why this is the best practice. And I present it to you now. You see, there is this thing called the Great Commission. You know it well. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the authoritative one, and now I command you. That's what he does. You go. You don't stay. You get busy. You don't relax. And what do you get busy doing? There's one verb. Make disciples. You reproduce. You do it within your loins, but you do it outside in the neighborhood as well. You make disciples. Where? Not of just Greenvillian folk, not of any special ethnicity or any class structure. We're going anywhere and everywhere making disciples of all nations. I told you there was one verb. You make disciples. The rest of these are participles. That means they, they explain kind of the process of how you're going to do it. Notice the participles and notice the order. You people are going. You people are making disciples because you're obeying me who has all authority. And you're going to do so baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to do whatever I command you. So why do we start with this passage, the Great Commission? Clearly, baptism is a big deal to the King of Kings, who has all authority and gives his marching orders to his church. But here comes the great division, doesn't it? I mean, there are some people who say it's absolutely essential that you be baptized or you can't even be saved. That would be your, our Church of Christ friends, and it would be some in the Reformed community that think only infants who die who have been baptized get into heaven. I do not believe baptism is essential according to the Scriptures. There would be some who say it's important. Sign me up for that one. There would be some who say it's not important at all. That would be your Salvation Army friends who, who don't engage in the sacraments at all. It may also be some of you. Because you've called upon Jesus Christ and have not found it necessary for you to follow in obedience and be baptized. 
People debate over the importance. People debate over who can baptize. The traditional view is only the ordained minister with his clerical collar. Some believe it can be a parent, a best friend, someone who has led you to Christ. If you watch the movie The Apostle, Robert Duvall goes out there and baptizes himself. The frequency. Some believe it's only a one-time event. Others believe it can be done again and again. The origination. Where did we start from? I mean, there are people who want to start with Jesus way over here and say, Jesus started something brand new. Some back up a half step and say, no, no, no. Jesus and John the Baptist started something brand new. But some of you, me, I'll raise my hand on this, say, oh, wait, Jesus was only doing what John the Baptist was doing, who was only doing that which had been done for thousands of years throughout the Old and New Testaments. So we have arguments or debates over that. The meaning of baptism. Some believe it is a swearing of what I have done. I stand here before my friends, and I now say, I have called upon Christ. I have put on the uniform. I'm a member of his team. I am his. He is mine because I've chosen him. Now wet me in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in front of everyone. Others say, no, that's not what it means at all. It's not talking about my work. It's talking about what God has done to me. And so I stand here as one corrupt but one who needs to be cleansed and one who wants to commune with him and one, therefore, who wants to be consecrated to go forth and work. But it's all his work that I'm celebrating. This has nothing to do with me. So there's a question that we have to talk about. Who should be baptized? Normally goes along with that previous thing. Those who are over here obviously say, how can someone say, I'm a Christian, I want to be baptized if they haven't called upon Christ and had fear, I mean faith. Other people say, no, 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 no. It's about what God does to people, believers, and their households. And so, therefore, someone could be over here and receive it if Scripture allows or teaches such. And then we have debates over the consequences. There are some who believe it's the first step of justification. That is not the Reformed view, for justification is an act. It's imputed not infused over time. Baptism doesn't start your salvation. There are some who believe it actually saves. We do not hold to that view, and we make it very clear to you that we are not people who believe in baptismal regeneration. So our, my Baptist friends, don't slander us. Hear me. We don't believe that. We have a father stand right here at this microphone and pray for the salvation of his child after the baptism. Because we want to make it very clear, we're depending on Jesus, not water, to save. There are some who believe that it brings you into the elect for a while, and as long as you live up and keep covenant with God, you can stay in. That would be your federal vision folk, and I believe they are wrong. But I do believe it has some power. It'll be my joy to explain that to you in just a moment. And then we come to the final question. What is it? Mode. How much H2O? I mean, there are some who believe that you need to be naked and submerged. That's an old, 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 old view. There's some evidence that some in the first century were naked and immersed. Some three times. 
Then there are many throughout history, and that's the practice of the Presbyterian Church, who believe that sprinkling or pouring is acceptable. And then there may be some over here who says the amount of H2O in the manor doesn't really matter that much. I tend to be here. I could very happily, when we have a Sunday morning service at Tom Bear's property in July, Tom and Kathy, I should say Kathy's property, not Tom. It's Kathy's that Tom manages. He's the, he's the help. I could happily stand there in the middle of that creek outside on that gorgeous Sunday day with the assembly of God worshiping, and I would have no problem bending down, grabbing a leaf and shaking it and sprinkling, or bending down and grabbing handfuls of water and pouring it. I'd have no problem if you want to lay down in the water, and it's only about that deep, but we'll get you in there if you want to. I would not feel my conscience would be troubled because I think I can show from Scripture where all those different ways would have been utilized at different times in regards to baptism. So that's where we're going. We have two sermons. This week, it's important for us to have a sermon on baptism. I'm changing up, and next week, we're going to have a sermon on the Lord's Supper because we do these activities, these rites and rituals all the time, and we need to know why we do it, and it needs to assist us in our worship. So that's where we're going. So I want now to ask you, what does Scripture say? And this is one other big thing about Presbyterians. We don't like proof texts. We don't like going one place in the Bible, finding one verse on something, and then saying, see, that proves the whole Bible. Rather, we like to look at every verse in view of the whole. And so we have a system that develops, because God doesn't double speak. And he says one thing here, one thing a little different there, one thing there, and we put it together and see and find the mind of God. So what is the mind of God on baptism? That's what I get to show you, I hope, in the next 20 minutes. A first principle that you need to have is this. There's only one God, and he has only one plan of salvation. Now, all of you are going to say amen, or most of you, amen. But a lot of us grew up believing differently. A lot of us grew up believing that God had one way for Israel, and then God was unhappy with how that all worked out and said, forget you, and went on to a second thing that he's doing now with some church, kind of a, a plan B, and then someday he's going to get back to plan A. That's not at all what I believe the scripture teaches. The Bible presents this God who begins with the end in mind. He decrees whatever comes to pass, and then he, he makes the plan, and then he starts working the plan. He's never frustrated. He's never surprised. Nothing ever takes him uh, by chance. And so God declared, I'm going to make man in my image. I'm going to give him a free will to make decisions. And man, if man is made in my image and makes decisions and obeys me and honors me, I'm going to give him communion with me forever, and I am going to bless his socks off. And if that same man that I create in my image choose to rebel, chooses to rebel, I will excommunicate him and curse him forever. That's called the covenant of works. And God knows that when he creates man perfect, blameless, righteous, but fallibly so, that means he could fall from grace. God knows ahead of time that when he does this, man is going to use his free will to fall from grace. And that's exactly what happened when Satan tempted Adam and Eve and they fell. 
And so there is Satan, the demons, Adam, Eve, and all their children lumped into the rebels who are excommunicated for life without hope, only waiting on more and more cursing until finally the place of hell. But God, who declared the covenant of works, also declared the covenant of grace, which we call the gospel. And this is one plan that he had from before the beginning of time. One plan before he created Adam and Eve. It's never been altered or adjusted. It can't get any better. It's his perfect plan, and this was it. He would send his only son, who would die on the cross for man's sin, but would earn righteousness for man's merit, so that sinful men could receive communion and blessing while Jesus Christ was excommunicated and cursed. That's the gospel, and God started preaching it to Adam. There's going to be a seed one day who's going to stomp on Satan's head. To Noah, there are clean and unclean animals, and we sacrifice the clean animals because it brings pleasure to God. Abraham, you're going to have a special son who's going to have special sons and daughters, and one day he's going to be on a mountain, and his own father is going to kill him. Moses, all your children should die like the Egyptians, but those that are found under the blood of the Passover lamb, they will be saved by God's Holy Spirit. There's coming one who will be the Passover lamb. All the rituals and the rites and the ceremonies and the traditions, all of them pointed to Christ. Oh, you get up and you have... David knowing there's going to be a prince, there's going to be a king. You have the prophet saying he's going to be born of a virgin, coming from Nazareth, coming from Bethlehem. Kings are going to hate him. This is what happens as the gospel is preached over and over. And it's kind of like that time, I think, I, I don't know if I've given this illustration, when I'm driving for the first time from South Carolina to Colorado. And you go through Kansas and go through Kansas and you keep going through Kansas because Kansas never ends. You see these windmills, and those are kind of cool, but that's about the only thing interesting until... Is that a cloud? No, that's, that's a mountain. That's a mountain. I thought we had mountains. That's a mountain. Whoa, that's not a mountain. That's mountains, plural. As, as you're getting closer and closer, that which you saw really, you're now seeing real specifically. That's what's happening in covenant theology. As you're moving your way through the gospel... It's not out with the old, in with the new. It's more and more and more of the new being shown to us. And now God's people are starting to understand it more and more. And so, we believe there's only one plan of salvation. This was true for anybody in Egypt. This was true for anybody in Canaan land. This was true for the Greeks and the Romans and the Persians and the Babylonians. This remains true. For anyone in North Korea or North America, this is the truth for anyone. There's only one way of salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is true for all nations, as you saw in the Great Commission, and this is the only possible way for an Israelite to get in now. There are not two gods. There's one God, and there are not two ways of salvation. There is only one we have to have that assumption. This is not plan B. Number two, therefore, there's only one earthly community. God does not a polygamist who has two brides, the church 
and Israel. He's very, very clear that not all in Israel are in Israel, which makes you start scratching your head. Because later on in Scripture, he starts talking about the true Israel. The true Israel is the church. The true Israel is the elect. The true Israel is anyone, Jew or Greek, found in Christ. Anyone over here, regardless of their ethnicity or nationality, is out. There is no hope except for Jesus Christ. And whether you are Old Testament or New Testament, whenever someone is found placing their trust in Christ, they are brought into the one community. The Bible's clear. There's one building with one foundation stone, and his name is Jesus. There's one flock with a great shepherd. One vine. Are you connected to it? One tree. There is one body, and Jesus is the head. One people, one nation, one assembly, one kingdom, one family, one household. There's only one. If you don't like it that way, how about the other things that Scripture says? You're either my people or you're not my people. You're either sheep or you're goats, with him or against him, in darkness or in light, saved or lost. You're alive or you're dead. You're children of the devil or you're adopted children of God. But there is no middle ground. There's no fence writing. This is what your Bible seems to show, that there's one plan of salvation and there's one gospel community, one bride the church of Jesus Christ. And when we get to heaven, all denominations and all ethnicities and nationalities will be made whole. The dividing wall of hostility has now been divided. Those earthly considerations matter not anymore. Number three, in God's one community, it has always, from the beginning to the end of the Bible, been made up of believers and their households, believers and their children. You just I don't have time to prove this, but from Noah to Abraham to Moses, all the way through Israel with Rahab and Joshua, they sing of it in the Psalms. When they gather worship services, the children of Israel are always made up of men, women, and their children and their servants. The prophet said when the Messiah comes, nothing's changing. He is going to be the one who turns the hearts of fathers to the children and children to the fathers because this is God's plan. God seems to be the one who absolutely loves saving believers and their children. You get into the New Testament, nothing changes. As a matter of fact, Old Testament prophecies of John the Baptist, the herald, said he was going to be the one who was engaged in family ministry like this. And so Jesus comes. And what do we see? We see Jesus saying, let the little children come unto me and, and forbid them not. And there's only a couple times in Scripture where Jesus gets really angry. He got really angry when his disciples uh, didn't appreciate the anointing of his feet. He got really angry when he went into the temple and saw these people abusing Gentiles and others by turning the, the house of prayer into a market. And there was one time when parents who loved their little children and were care, cared so much for their spiritual condition of their children knew Jesus was the Savior. And they're bringing their children, their little ones, to Jesus. How do we know they were little ones? 
because in a little bit, he's going to pick them up and put them in his arms. And I don't know what kind of guns Jesus had. But as the parents are bringing their infants to Jesus, the disciples say, no, 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 no. Jesus is for adult believers. Jesus is for those who know what they're doing, who have good skills of logic and ration. And Jesus got indignant and said, don't you dare keep those little ones away from me. For of such is the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to ones such as this. And then Jesus picked up the child in his arms and he blessed them. It doesn't say he used water, but that's real similar. As you are taking this little child over here when we have the, the baptismal font, and we are picking him up in their arms, and we are bringing them to Jesus and saying, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, would you bless them? Jesus understood this. Peter, after his first sermon after Pentecost, yes, he said, repent and be baptized. Good job. You got that one. Acts chapter 2. A few verses later, and this applies to you and your household. So now everyone is understanding nothing has changed. Peter, Paul, they make a big deal in their writings about the Holy Spirit and what he does with believers and their households. So much so that Paul even says, Unsaved ladies, I mean, say, believing ladies, are you married to an unbeliever? You may want to stay put if you can do so peacefully and safely. Why? Because God is the one who blesses families, and by you being there, your husband and your children are not just out in the world. They are placed under the protection of God's covenant family, and maybe God will use you to bring them to saving knowledge. But there's blessing for them, your husband and your child, when they're included in God's holy family, more so than if you just divorced and split and left them on their own. And so we see that the covenant community has always been made up of believers and their children. And now we start making good progress here. In God's one church, from Genesis through Revelation, he has always had what I'm going to call today morphing rituals. Morphing, this idea of changing a little bit, shifting, adjusting. Rituals. Maybe you like sacraments or means of grace or ceremonies or traditions. I, I, things we do in worship. But God has always had them. Why? I hope you've been reading the subtitle behind me. They don't do anything. but they point to the God who does something. And so there is a God who washes, a God who circumcises, a God who heals, a God who dies, a God who feeds, but the God who does all those things by the power of his Holy Spirit loves it when his people come together to worship and he instructs them and says, okay, I got these rituals or ceremonies that you're supposed to go through that point to who I am and what I do. And so in the Old Testament, you know a lot of those. If you've been reading through the Bible this year, we've been stuck there for a while. And we keep reading about the pilgrimages. There were times to go to the holy city. They had holy cities. They had holy buildings. They had holy tents and they had holy furniture. They had holy priests with holy clothes 
who worked on holy days. There were holy weeks. There were holy years. There were holy feasts. There were holy surgeries. There was holy food. There was holy wine. There were holy smells. Over and over again, as you read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then all the way through, even into the Gospels, you see what the Old Covenant Hebrew worship looked like. So the church of grace of the Old Covenant, the church that was saved the same way in the Old Covenant, they had all of these rules and all of these rituals, and they were supposed to do them not because they just worked. A Latin phrase is ex opera operato. The idea being that if you just do it, it kind of works. No, 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 no. There were people who were physically circumcised that were not spiritually circumcised, or people that were physically washed that were never spiritually washed, people that ate of the physical bread that were not spiritually nourished by Christ. They don't necessarily do anything. They point to the Holy Spirit who does it. And then we know that many of those morphed morphed in such a fashion that they were now discontinued, honorably retired. You don't have to do any of those things anymore. I don't have special clothing I have to wear. There's no special furniture here. But there were some that made the cut. And the God who organizes his worship says, um, I, I want you to still have a day of worship, but instead of it being the seventh day of the week with all of those mosaic tightness, that law, let's, let's move it to the first day of the week, and now it's a day of worship and rest, but uh, you don't have to keep it as did Moses and all the Israelites. Um, let's have feasts, but instead of seven, I'd like you to have one. We're going to call it the Lord's Supper, and I would like you to do it until the day that Jesus Christ comes again, and at that point, we'll discontinue it because we'll enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb forever and ever. And let's see, a third one, Jesus says. Let's do baptism. And so now you're asking the question, why is there so much division? Well, I think there's so much division because people who on the timeline, they, they start in the middle of the story. They start with John the Baptist instead of looking at what God has been doing with baptism throughout the whole scriptures. And they start with an assumption that whatever God's doing with the church has nothing to do with Israel. They start with the assumption that maybe the gospel's plan B, this whole national thing's plan A. Or they start with this assumption that God has changed who belongs in his covenant community. Now it's only believers, not believers and their children, instead of assuming the exact opposite, that we better stay with the program unless God explicitly tells us. So what can we learn from baptism throughout the Bible? Well, before I go there, I'd like to talk about circumcision. Just quickly. You see, have any of you been in a fraternity or sorority or you've been a freshman on a ball team or you had to go through some initiation rites? Maybe having your head shaved, getting a brand, being tied naked to a stop sign. I don't know, thrown in a trunk and you wake up somewhere. Some of the stories you probably just don't need to tell us. These initiation rites that show you once were out, but now you're in. In God's church, there has always been an initiation rite from the beginning. 
and it was circumcision. Abraham, I love you. I'm gracing you. You're my child. You're in my family. Come on in. The first thing you have to have is some surgery on your body part. Abraham says, I believe, I have faith, I repent, here I am. And then God said, and all of your not yet believing servants and children, all those in your household, they're supposed to receive the initiation right too. To which someone may say, yeah, yeah, whoa, 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 what are you doing, God? Abraham believes. Those other people, they don't believe. To which God says, correct. Because my initiation right for circumcision is applied to men and it's for them and their children. And circumcision symbolized three things. It symbolized I am corrupt. That I need to have that corruption cut off, removed, replaced, cleansed, cut, corruption, cleansed. And now I can be part of his community. So serious was God that he said, anyone who does not get my initiation right of surgery, that person is to be cut off from my people forever and ever. That's how serious God was. So I know it's a weird story. We don't have to have PowerPoint displays of it. Just get the significance of it. God had a group. God had a church. It's only by grace. It's for believers and their children. And male members in there were to receive the sign of initiation that preached a gospel. I'm corrupt. I need to be cleansed so that I can commune. Well, there's also this thing called baptism. And in the New Testament, twice, Paul who really understands Hebrew theology pretty well, has no problem saying baptism is the circumcision of Christ without hands. He connects them. Or in the book of Philippians, Paul says, we are the circumcision of Christ writing to Gentile believers. And I don't think it's a, a big stretch for Paul to write this under inspiration at all, because baptism means the same thing with one more C. Baptism is when someone stands here and someday when we get to baptize the next person, they're going to say, I'm corrupt. I'm dirty. I need to be cleansed by the Holy Spirit. I want to commune with you. I want my initiation mark. I want my tattoo. I'm in the body of Christ. And now as a priest, I'm being consecrated because baptism is the ritual water that points to what the Holy Spirit does. That's what I mean when I say it's the ritual preaching the real. It's not the water that does anything, but it's the Holy Spirit that falls. This is what Jesus was going to do according to the Old Scriptures, Old Testament. The Messiah was going to come sprinkling the nations. He was going to pour out His Holy Spirit upon people. And the Holy Spirit was going to find those who were dirty and corrupt, wash them and make them clean, bring them into community, and from that point on, consecrate them as priests for service. And so we see baptism as it's portrayed all the way through the Bible, even into the New Testament to which that's exactly what the Jews were doing. 
when they who had been baptized many, many times in the Old Testament were hearing John the Baptist and Jesus preach in the wilderness. So they now leave the temple. They go out into the wilderness. And there they are doing what? Well, most of them are going, I repent. I'm corrupt. I need to be cleansed. I want to commune with you and Jesus. But there were some Pharisees who came. They came out to do what? Get wet again. To which John and Jesus look at them and say, what are you doing here? Repent. They, didn't, they, weren't they thought they were clean. They weren't recognizing their dirtiness and their need for God to, to wash them. And so we have this baptism thing going on throughout the Old Testament. And how do we see them getting baptized in the Old Testament? I have this list here. Priests had, had their clothes washed. They were to wash their tools, their instruments, and their furniture. Women were to be washed on the 40th day following labor and giving birth. After every monthly cycle, they were baptized. And you're saying, wait, 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 wait. You just made a switch there, didn't you, Joe? You just went and, I know about all those ceremonial washings, but you're calling them baptisms now. That's because in Hebrews, it calls them baptismos. In Luke, the Pharisees are all concerned why Jesus doesn't baptize his hands. He uses that word before eating. The Septuagint, when they wrote of the Old Testament in Greek, uh, 19 times or so, used baptizo to describe all of those Levitical ceremonial washings. So let me go back again. People were baptized. They had their clothes baptized. They had their tools and instruments and furnitures baptized. Women after their uh, giving birth or their monthly cycle were baptized. After having sexual relationships, you had to be baptized. After having contact with the dead, you had to be baptized. After having contact with a diseased person or even cleansed of a disease, you had to go to the priest and be baptized. Your possessions, your houses were baptized. When you wanted to offer a sin offering, you had to be baptized. When you wanted to enter the tabernacle, you had to baptize your hands. The Messiah was going to be the one who would sprinkle many nations. He would baptize with clean water and cleanse. This is exactly what we see in the Old Testament. Baptisms over and over and over again. And how? I think sometimes by sprinkling with hyssop, sometimes by pouring, sometimes maybe a full body wash. But this is what you see through the Old Testament. You get to John the Baptist, and no one's asking him, What's this new thing you're doing? Because they've been doing it forever. Why is he out at the Jordan River? Because they don't like him in the temple. Why is he? in the river because he has thousands of people coming and he needs much water how did he and Jesus go down into the river oh they could have gone scuba diving underneath all the way down it's very possible or it could be like Dan Polster with his boat he hopes it doesn't get immersed when he takes his boat into the water and brings it up out of the water we don't know. It doesn't say. The word baptism does not mean immersion. It means to be wetted. 
It really means to be immersed. It means to be so soaked and saturated with something, though, that it, it doesn't just kind of dry. It leaves a lasting impression forever and ever. And what did it point to? The Holy Spirit, which is why John the Baptist said, why are you people making a big deal of my water baptism? After me comes one, I can't even put his Birkenstocks on. But he's coming, and though I baptize with water, he may baptize with water too, but he's going to baptize with what? The Holy Spirit and with fire. So the water baptism, again, even in the words of John, points to Jesus who baptizes, not you who makes a, proclaim, a proclamation of your faith and repentance. That's not the primary thing that happens. So it makes sense then that you would repent and be baptized. Because anytime you repent, you're now running back to Jesus. You want to do what Jesus would have you do. And Jesus says, you're to be baptized. And it makes sense now while you go through all the, the New Testament scriptures that you have these Gentiles who are now running to Jesus Christ and they're being baptized. And who else? And their households. We see it over and over in Scripture. I believe there are five examples I have here. Cornelius' household, Lydia's household, the Philippian jailer, Crispus, and Stephanus. And here's the key. I can't prove that their whole household did not believe. Maybe they did. Maybe it was like the Asbury Revival. God hit. They all believed. They sang, just as I am, came forward, and were baptized. I can't prove that any of them came to know Jesus other than the head of household. It doesn't tell us. It just makes it very clear that every single time in the New Testament that a head of household is mentioned and he comes to faith, his whole family is baptized with him. And where? Out in rivers. Where else? Paul was baptized in a house where Ananias was. The Philippian jailer was baptized, he and his family, in the middle of a city, in a house. Were they submerged in running water in a river? No. They had water applied to them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm fast-forwarding. You can see I'm going through pages. I got stuff I can send you. I got books I can give you. Ralph Bass has written manuscripts on this stuff. He's going to tell you that I'm wrong, that every single time in the Bible, the only means pouring. He may be right. But I got people that disagree with him, so we'll just keep going. When you look at history, what do you see? Nine of 12 early church fathers referred to infant baptism as the practice of the early church. This is not something new. This is not a leftover residue of the Roman Catholic Church that we have not yet discarded. We have pictures of this process in catacombs, and there's no picture of immersion. Pictures of people having water applied to them. Here's some of those quotes. Ralph just found them. John Murray that bapto may sometimes refer to immersion, there needs to be no question. That's one sentence. Ralph's written a whole book now showing why that may not be true. 
Westminster Confession says, dipping of the person into water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Francis Schaeffer said, in regard to immersion, let me say that personally I will immerse if the individual desires this mode of baptism. If my elders would allow me, I would do the same. I don't know what they'll say. They haven't, I haven't asked. We've never gone down that road. But I would be not true to Scripture if I didn't say, I really think infant baptism is biblical. It's beautiful. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. And when you look at some of these questions, what would I have you do next? I would have you study. I'd have you pray. And I would have you come to your own conclusion. For there have been plenty of brothers and sisters who disagree with me. Next question. How will we worship alongside our Baptistic brothers and sisters? With great joy and harmony. I do not want you to practice infant baptism if you do not believe in it. For to go against your conscience and what you think the scripture says would be wrong. I want you to go deep and think and pray and ask yourself, is it not beautiful? Is it not biblical? I got books for you to read if you want them. But we will not split over this and you do not have to believe in infant baptism to be a good, solid member of Horizon Church. And finally, how can we be further graced at our next ceremony? The Westminster Confession of Faith says, baptism actually gives grace. What woe? to those of faith. So what you're supposed to do when you do baptism is similar to what you do in the Lord's Supper. You who believe, watch, pray, and worship. Why? Because that's a microcosm of what Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit has done for you. That you were dirty as can be, lost in your sin, without hope, even your good deeds were like filthy rags. And that God sent His Son, who sent His Spirit, and the Father, Son, and Spirit together have completely purged you of your sin and your guilt. And just like that infant is being wetted, so the Holy Spirit has come upon you and cleansed you. And you have received the sign of entrance into the church. That is your initiation right. Welcome to the table. Come on. And now you are like Jesus was when he was anointed or like the priests were in the Old Testament when they're anointed. You are washed and you are now priests of the Most High God ready to go serve. When you see baptism, whether it's a believer's baptism or, a cre uh, or an infant baptism, you should use it as an opportunity to worship because this is what Jesus Christ has done for you.